to episode 45 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. Earlier this year, Pluto published a new edited collection from Jules Joanne Gleeson and L. O'Rourke titled Transgender Marxism. The book does pretty much exactly what the title promises. It offers a groundbreaking synthesis of transgender studies and Marxist theory. Exploring trans lives and movements, the collection's contributors delve into the experiences of surviving as transgender under capitalism. They explore the pressures, oppression and state persecution faced by trans people living in capitalist societies, their tenuous positions in the workplace and the home, and give a powerful response to right-wing scaremongering against gender ideology. Transgender Marxism has definitely been one of our most highly anticipated publications of 2021 so far, so we were keen to bring some of these strands of discussion onto the podcast as well. And it's taken a couple of months, but I'm very pleased to say that the moment has finally arrived. It's my real pleasure to introduce for our episode today a conversation between Jules Dranglison and Farah Thompson. Jules is a writer, comedian and historian. She's published essays in outlets including Viewpoint Magazine, Invert Journal and Vice, and she's performed internationally at a wide range of communist and queer cultural events. As I mentioned, Jules is also one of the co-editors of Transgender Marxism. She's joined on the panel by Farah Thompson. Farah is a black bisexual trans woman who lives in San Diego. She advocates for anti-imperialism, LGBT rights, decriminalisation of drug use and sex work, and self-determination of black and colonised peoples. And she's the author of one of the book's chapters titled The Bridge Between Gender and Organising. So just before we get underway, it's time for me to give a quick shout out to our newest Patreon patrons. J.K., Melanie Meddy, Sebastian Morrison, Eleonora Fastari, Sandra, Eva, Sasha, Rosa, Amelia, Nikolai, Tegan, Kat, Chloe J, and Megan. So to all of the above, a big thank you for your continued support. If you're not already a member, then do check out patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press. Members get access to the unabridged version of this podcast, along with a number of other excellent benefits. And lastly, a quick reminder that podcast listeners can get an exclusive 50% off transgender Marxism through plutobooks.com for the next month. All you have to do is enter the coupon podcast at the checkout. Okay, that's it for the usual announcements. So once again, it's my great pleasure to introduce Jules Chuang Gleason and Farah Thompson on Radicals and Conversation. Farah and Jules, thank you very much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show and to get to talk about Transgender Marxism, which is this wonderful new collection that Pluto published, I think it was in May, wasn't it? So it's been out there making waves for a few months. But um, yeah, Jules, as one of the co-editors, perhaps firstly, uh, you can tell me a bit about the genesis of the book. So what prompted you and Elle, your co-editor, to bring this collection together in the first place? And what was that process like? So myself and Al, my co-editor, decided to put this collection together back in 2018. And our origin point was that both of us had been engaging with and contributing to a lot of different theorization of transgender experiences and transgender struggles, both gender struggles and class struggles, um, for some years. But like we increasingly realized, I think uh, both of us had got frustrated at specifically the ephemeral or the fleeting nature of 
a lot of these conversations. And that kind of fleeting nature, I think, was especially obvious online. You know, across time, people would develop these intellectual breakthroughs and have these really illuminating conversations, which would then sort of be buried across time and buried increasingly quickly. If you think about like Instagram or Snapchat or any of these more recently popularized apps, they're kind of like a lot of the insights get disintegrated within 24 hours, right? Like on the stories Mm. and, and so on. So we wanted to kind of produce something which was a bit more lasting and also a bit more accessible and especially something which didn't quite get so privatized or like personalized in the way that a lot of this writing and thinking previously had been. So our agenda with this book was to collect larger scope of people and sort of get it out there onto shelves, get it into like a published, like printed form, although it's also obviously in a PDF. And that was kind of like what our aim was. So the book consists of 14 main chapters, which tackle a pretty diverse range of themes and concerns. Some are sort of more historically minded, like Nat Raha's chapter on a queer Marxist transfeminism. Some are sort of like a bit more speculative and theoretical in their orientation, like Sandra Metcalf's essay, which is very um, psychoanalytic. But basically, these 14 essays are taking up different themes and different concerns, which are of interest to the people who are writing them. So there's like a total of 16 authors, including the introduction, which was written by myself and Al, and then also an afterword called One Utopia, One Dystopia by Geordie Rosenberg. Um, It's a pretty broad, a pretty wide-ranging collection in terms of the different themes and concerns it addresses, which was very much like what we set out to do. Because as I say in these discussions, it was like they would fade away very quickly. But what was most interesting about them is so many different concerns were sort of getting drawn into these conversations and whatever else we were finding. And um, we wanted to kind of like put something out there which would be a bit more monumental, something which other people could sort of bounce off. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, the book hasn't, as you say, conjured into existence this new perspective called transgender Marxism. You know, that was out there already in various forms. But uh, yeah, I mean, the book is clearly doing something that's new and exciting. And the publication has already been met with a lot of enthusiasm, which is wonderful. So you begin the the introduction to the book with the words or the sentence, you know, there seem to be more of us around lately. And then you kind of note that trans aesthetics and stylings and tastes have swollen well beyond the set of subcultures that they spanned sort of a few years ago. So why do you think that transgender culture has become so sort of mainstream or trans lives have become so visible in the last few years? That's a very interesting question. So trans culture sort of prior to the 2010s, at least in the West, is kind of quite difficult to talk about because it has these sort of two forms. I think for a lot of people, transition was something which was very isolating and also sort of very esoteric. It was something which many people embarking on transitions would aim to kind of keep them a secret as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, Whereas contrastingly, you had this transgender movement, which was primarily countercultural, existed against kind of existing norms and kind of had an accompanying political commitment. Yeah, a lot of the culture, which which you can call like explicitly transgender up until the mid 2010s was this, this kind of like set of subcultures, which wasn't any one singular thing, but which had like a whole bunch of different manifestations in different locations, different cities, different countries. Um, but like clearly around the mid 2010s, something really changed quite dramatically. And there's a few different ways we can measure it. One is to just look at the surface level of things the like media appearances there's this famous 
front cover of a Time magazine um, with Laverne Cox, the star of Orange is the New Black, where the, the cover says the transgender tipping point. Um, or you can look at clinic figures and the number of people who are applying for hormone replacement therapy accompanying their transgender experience. Or you can look at the size of online communities and um, different circles like that, which clearly expanded quite remarkably between around, let's say, 2014 to 2017. And um, in the wake of this, there was like something else. And I think this like something else is not something that like people quite know how to describe yet. Like my description is you're looking at the shift from a set of subcultures to a kind of nascent developing mass culture of sorts. But how exactly we can talk about it, yeah, it's quite difficult to even name. But in terms of like transgender Marxism, one of the upshots is that there's like an unmistakable number of people involved in revolutionary politics are either sort of like coming to terms with their own gender in new ways or indeed like their very experiences with entering transgender uh, circles and living as a trans person in the wider society is sort of something which is radicalizing them and mobilizing them towards left-wing politics or towards kind of revolutionary movements, I suppose. So that's kind of like, that's what this book is coming out of, right? That's thing which this, this book is hoping to fuel and help develop, but it's also that's that's this kind of thing which was already in full swing, <laughs> even when we were still planning it back in 2018. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's quite interesting to note that prior to this sort of publication, a lot of the book length treatments of like trans lives have come in the form of the memoir, you know, and that has been the norm. Like, why do you think that has been the case in the years leading up to now, that that has been the predominant sort of form or genre, if you will, in which, yeah, the trans experience or trans experiences, yeah, have found voice in the literary world? Our first official launch event with Pluto Press was actually hosted by Juliet Jacks, who had her own very successful memoir just called Trans out with um, Basso Books, I think it was, back in 2015. Yeah, and we spoke quite frankly about this, both during the discussion and beforehand. And the kind of impression which all three of us kind of have at this point is that it used to be saying which is mandatory, right? It's basically like a publishing imperative. It's something which an actual established printing press would think they could bank on. They could like rely on selling these kind of narratives. Whereas other... (laughs) Well, the weird thing is, is like uh, trans people always have these other perspectives and like very well-developed opinions on all kinds of topics. But often this is kind of something which, especially like mainstream publishing presses would sort of not be sure about, you know what I mean? There'd be like an uncertainty. So you get this result that you'd have like loads of trans people publishing stuff on sites like medium.com or other kind of like free outlets, I suppose. And prior to that, obviously blogging was like a massive thing. But um, that's kind of like the simple reason is that it was sort of something which was pretty much mandatory. So what we wanted to do with this collection is not to kind of like avoid that style of writing altogether, but sort of provide it as one one approach that we can take to our theoretical thinking rather than the kind of like mandatory point of departure. And something I will say for Pluto Press is actually, yeah, they were very encouraging and kind of like making us feel like we could include whatever sort of theoretical approaches we saw fit. Mm. Oh, good. Yeah. So transgender Marxism, I mean, there's a there's a certain brand of Marxist, I suppose, who might argue that the very idea of a transgender Marxism is like a distraction from the, the true class struggle, right? We're all familiar with the phrase identity politics, how it's thrown around kind of pejoratively. Yeah, what would be your rebuttal to this style of thinking or this kind of statement that 
you know, it's a distraction or something that's separate to, you know, the real class struggle. Yeah. So those kind of viewpoints, they've always been around this kind of viewpoint that there's like proper materialist politics, which like exclusively focuses on bread and butter concerns or like historical approaches that just look at crop yields or whatever form this kind of strand of Marxism tends to take. Um, That viewpoint's kind of like been around for a long while. It's not something I find especially interesting. And I feel like those arguments don't really seem to change across time. They kind of seem to say the same thing, no matter what you come out with. But with that being said, like what we try and put across in the introduction of the book and what I think like a lot of our contributors give voice to in different ways is that like, there's no reason that we can't see transgender experiences in terms of like their own forms of like needs and even cravings and sensations like that. And yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is that it kind of feels like with these viewpoints, they're always trying to like, they're sort of like providing the strange account of Marxism, which is trying to totally detach itself from the sensual, which to me is very curious because when you read Marx, like the whole account, the thing that Marx finds interesting about commodities, the reason he starts Capital with them in the very first chapter of Capital One is exactly because like you can't really interact with even basic everyday objects that seem very simple. You can't interact with them in a meaningful way without kind of making sense of both the sensual qualities, both the kind of like immediate features of an object, whether it's a chair or a packet of milk or whatever. Like you can't like um, interact with this object without kind of reference to its sensual qualities, but you also can't like detach it from the super sensual, which is the term Marx is used to talk about the much grander kind of systemic thing that it's plugged into. So that's kind of like the type of Marxism which I'm into. <laughs> well, that's the that's what I get out of Marx. And this is kind of like a decent enough way of approaching transgender experiences, transgender social conditions, and everything like that. It's like, there's never really a need to choose between the like tangible and the physical uh, and the sensual or the kind of like grander questions we normally bracket as like political economy systemic structural like those are two things which we sort of have to make sense of at the same time right like in the same motion so with the collection with transgender marxism like i said there was this kind of need to include a whole bunch of different viewpoints people from different countries people from different backgrounds people who have different gender positions in terms of being trans men trans women non-binary Um, and whatever else. Um, The thing that was really important to both myself and to Al was sort of not placing anyone firmly in the position of like, okay, well, you're the representative or you're like the reporter from this particular background or of this particular thing. So we wanted to like provide a platform where people could either talk through their own experiences and talk with reference to their own experiences and backgrounds or kind of like not to do that, <laughs> because I feel like this is in um, left-wing discussions sort of often the downfall of any efforts to wed trans theory and radical politics. It's that like the trans person is called upon to provide their trans critique of whatever's going on, and that's sort of as far as it goes. So like they explain their experiences and they talk about how the movement is falling short of including that, and then there's kind of no actual theorization or like nothing to build on that follows on from that. So in this collection, it was very like, it was important to us both that people could provide like 
viewpoints which sort of talked about their own national context, for instance. So Notes from Brazil by um, Virginia uh, Gitzel is a piece which is like pretty much exclusively doing that. But other essays in the book, for instance, like there's two contributors who kind of didn't want to identify themselves at all. So that was something which we also kind of wanted to allow space for. So like people can approach their own problems in their own ways. If I may join in, actually what Jules just said about particular trans critiques that only go so far, only talk from a specific viewpoint, was actually what made her and Ella Work's inclusion in my essay particularly surprising to me because at first I was approached to ask to contribute this essay to say, oh, what about your experiences with gendered living? And so I decided to just basically just write a confessional, essentially. And I thought that would be a little bit too navel-gazy, but as it turns out, and this isn't just Jewel saying this, but other people who have read it since the book has been published, people have learned something from it. People have, if anything, for how depressing my mm-hmm. contribution is, people have actually found like some courage to try to organize. There are some people in my social circles who say they want to go out and organize because of what I've written, which is funny because like, you know, I intended to be like, I've basically done what Jules had almost like described as being like, almost like a critique of how the movement is failing them. But I have done some reading. I mean, I can't say that I've read everything. Of course not. But like, I can say that I've done some of the reading. I can say that I have like, you know, strained my own life experiences through a theoretical lens first being in the closet, observing like online communities of radical feminists, but also feminist thinkers who are a bit more trans-inclusive, but only up to a certain point. And then, you know, being in the closet, you have to make a particular choice as to whether or not the risk of being yourself is more important than postponing it for the one mythical day in which you'll be acceptable. Because that was what kind of kept me in for a long time. That's what kind of like, you know, not just in left of space, but also being trans in general. There seems to be this almost idea that's drilled into your head, in part because of the legacy of Janice Raymond, that you have to be a certain type of person. And being a certain type of person means this idea of an essence that I've often found myself outside of, and not by choice. Like if womanhood is supposed to be conflated with this idea of delicacy, or at least with some behaviors that I, growing up in Compton, could not have. Not to say that I wasn't raised in some respectability politics to a certain extent, but even within my own attempt to try to conform to respectability politics, I still sensed that people found me monstrous. And in some cases, that would be proven entirely correct. Despite that, you know, I decided to come out in the eve of the 2016 U.S. presidential election anyway, and I was like, fuck it, I might as well just do the thing. Maybe I'm a trender, maybe I'm annoying, but I'm real. Um, what I found especially helpful about your essay, Farah, and what I think like a few other people have told me as well, is like, there's especially this treatment of radical feminism. Like you mentioned Janice Raymond, I think there's also like black radical feminists, like Bell Hooks and Alice Walker, I think also mentioned kind of like in the course of this essay, there's this really fascinating kind of two-faced relationship, which I feel like a lot of trend theory really has with radical feminism, where it like it seems to provide so much explanation and like so much of use to like trans theorization. And yet also there's this inevitable history of mutual hostility and like uh yeah, just really increasingly rancid transphobia, especially in Britain. 
that just makes it really fraught and really difficult to address. And I feel like this essay is kind of like explaining exactly how this unfolds in a way which I feel like only confessional writing can do, right? Where it's like, uh, these are the thinkers you are basically in dialogue with, um, even though you'd never met them. And yet that also like, not the people who could provide you with like a model for actually struggling through this, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I've been in feminist spaces where people are hyper vigilant about like, you know, sexual harm, about sexual assault, about like domestic violence and these things like that. And it's through this hyper vigilance that we come to some of these thinkers. And for some people, some of these lines of thought are refuges. But I've always found myself bouncing off of them. You know, it's like how when people tell you all the time when you go to college, you know, you got to read this canon of great thinkers like in my case being Nietzsche, only like you read Nietzsche and you find yourself bouncing off of it because everyone tells you, you know, this is a canon. This is something that's, you know, somehow transcendent the bounds of like popular culture or whatever. This is something that's going to last, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's for you. There's something hostile to this environment that I found myself having to both like rationalize and also try to get used to. Because the alternative is maybe you're just not fit to be around. Um, if I may, I think, Jules, what you were talking about when I was mentioning some of these thinkers, if I may read a passage from my chapter. So talking about that double-sided relationship with radical feminism and even feminism in general, I related in a personal story. Before I knew I was trans, I would spend a lot of time on the internet and in libraries. And at first, I found more comfort and power in the writings of women than men. I looked at the writings of Mary Dolly, Bell Hooks, Andrea Dworkin, Alice Walker, and others. Women whose words were meant to break down the world and provide avenue for freedom, but did so by reducing masculinity to a pathology, or by embracing my manly self-stylization for womanhood's empowerment. I took this example to mean that my own small way of doing good would be by trying to understand why I was miserable, and then dealing with it through forms of harsh self-discipline directed towards some possible transcendence. I would refuse to pick fights or fix my lisp, but in another way, I would struggle against myself. Sometimes a feminist self-education would give me something to fill the void from years of abuse, a framework to understand why I suffered. Through it, I found some solidarity with others, especially those who had read the same literature. But other times I witnessed that knowledge be deployed as a way to make oneself out to be better than the people they're supposed to be liberating with everyone outside the group treated like diseased, dangerous people. Victims of patriarchy, who either had to be saved or eliminated. And as far as I understood it, a failed man like myself is still a man. I was still a probable threat. Self-discipline could be demanded of me in ways that could never be reasonably imposed on those readily accepted as women. If I was nothing but a failed man with a fucked up voice, a desire for true love and ambition to boot, then the least I could do was reduce my collateral damage. That was how I understood myself in relation to my abuser, to my sister, and to any other woman who stood next to me, even in admiration. Maybe I would never be an outright good person, but at least I could try not to repeat the echo of male domination. I could resist the regulatory violence that has defined my past and still serves as a focus for my neuroses. The thing is, though, that only gave me temporary comfort. I still felt chained. I still hated my body and would spend nights interrogating myself in front of the bathroom mirror. All my self-monitoring for signs of evil maleness did nothing to combat the misery. They offered me no new communication with the other women around me. And while I was able to do some good and make friends, I still felt broken. 
My neurosis split out the longer people knew me. Simple words sent me over the edge. Over the years, I've learned that I am just an echo of someone else's expectations, and that my humanity is contingent on responding to that. From being someone's ghetto fuck toy, to being considered a possible school shooter for being too introverted, to being a bigot's token that can lean on while speaking broadly about heavy concepts to whoever listened. None of that displaced the alienation I felt. Sure, I wasn't displaying an image of a domestic abuser from a TV crime drama, but I still wasn't given room to be a whole person. To be whole meant being dangerous and barred out of the few safe spaces I was permitted to be in. So yeah, that's like pretty much like, um, that's a chunk of it. I go through a lot of other things. Like I do admit that within my particular confessional writing and why I found it like, you know, amazing that people would accept this is because I thought that I was merely gliding on the surfaces of what this actually means. Because, you know, say someone encounters me in the street one day, Say someone tries to quiz me on how much of Andre Dworkin I've actually read. There are still debates going on in the internet to this day about people somehow smearing or misinterpreting Andre Dworkin's work. But, like, that brings up a question. Like, you know, how much does the work really matter? And what type of work are you talking about? Like, you have to remember some of these fe- radical feminist thinkers, they didn't just live in an academy. Some of their thinking was rooted in an academy, but they had to go out of it eventually. Angela Davis especially, you know, she may have had her start with the Black Panthers, but she also had her toe in academia as well. And whether you see that as being counter-revolutionary or not, I think that breaks down the lie that people seem to have, where, like, you know, simply looking at a canon of a person's thought is all you need to look at. I think it's better to look at the wider context, and you may find that a lot of these wider contexts, a lot of these thinkers, as I would later say in my essay, there are some very telling gaps in how they treat people. You can write the most beautiful words, you can write the most cathartic words, but if you treat the other person who's sitting next to you like shit, especially in wider movements, does that really matter? Yeah, I guess I've got two things kind of following on from that. And one is about radical feminism or maybe second wave feminism more broadly, which like, I think as I mentioned before, this is something which kind of reappears throughout the book and it appears in very different ways like for instance the very first essay by Noah Zazanis which is called Social Reproduction and Social Cognition is kind of looking exactly at the typical kind of socialization account of gender formation which you kind of find from a lot of radical feminist thinkers including I should say like uh, radical feminist thinkers who are like explicitly pro-trans and um, trying to make sense of that and seeing how those can be improved on. Um, Rosa Lee's essay on Judith Butler's scientific revolution kind of looks at what sort of a break was happening with Judith Butler's work from earlier approaches to gender. And uh, I guess that's what's something I realized as I was putting through the index, actually, because there's other examples where, like, all the way through, like, feminism comes up in this different set of ways. And I think the reason for this is that, like, radical trans theory, it used to just typically be called trans feminism, right? That was a term used in very different ways in like Italian and Spanish contexts and in Britain. But like when I was first sort of getting into this stuff, transfeminism is the main word that people would use sometimes, like radical transfeminism or whatever. But like, I think it's a curious thing. And I think it's exactly because like my sketch of things is like you can't really imagine transgender experiences and transgender lives as they exist today without the context of like breakthroughs of the women's movement very broadly defined, like whether we're talking the 
Black Panthers or like lesbian retreats in Michigan or whatever. Like this is this is like the broad social transformation which kind of made so much of what transgender life today looks like uh, possible at all. So that's that's kind of like an interesting feature. I would say that like this is definitely not not a feminist collection, right? But also it's like it has this very tangled relationship, which I'm very much looking forward to talking about. Also, like on the confessional mode. There is kind of like other examples of like confessional writing in here. Another example is Jane Hood's essay Encounters in Lancaster, which is basically about living in like one of the smallest cities in Britain and sort of like the experiences you kind of have when you're trying to transition in that context. And um, it's sort of like pretty heavily stylized essay, which is kind of like drawing from Samuel Chip Delaney, the sci-fi author and gay communist in terms of both its style and also the kind of questions it's trying to address so like um there's other confessional writing in the book i guess that was the point i was making i suppose i I was going to ask farah about your political journey which you talk about in the chapter as well you write about how without class consciousness your work could have been more limited or would be much more limited and i was just thinking you know how do you think your experience of going through life as trans has sort of enriched your understanding of class as well yeah because um i grew up in a context where as far as Black consciousness is concerned, I grew up under a shadow of Black nationalism. But it was a markedly different type of Black nationalism than, say, the early 1970s Pan-African movements, which were explicitly anti-imperialist. Not that, you know, people in my neighborhood under Black nationalism weren't anti-war to an extent, but I was raised on the verge of Black nationalism, where it was more of an aspirational capitalism. Mm. You know, you go around Crenshaw, for example, Back when the Magic Johnson Theater was actually called the Magic Johnson Theater and was actually owned by Magic Johnson himself, Magic Johnson came to be defined not just by his overcoming of HIV and AIDS through, you know, his own star status as a basketball player, but he was also supposed to be brought up as this idea of like how other Black men in community could be, as people who could be somehow super talented, but also super shrewd in business matters, you know, super smart, the point is that this was a Black nationalism that, you know, it was able to problematize the narrative of Africa as being a monolith, you know? So in other words, I had some passive familiarity with the nuances of South Africa and Nigeria and other countries, but it wasn't necessarily a communist vision of things. And that's what I mean by saying, when I said that class consciousness really connected things together, because yes, obviously I've experienced things growing up, you know, the three strikes law did heavily affect black communities. There are people who were arrested during the three strikes law in the 90s who are probably still in jail today, not to mention the legacy of the Reagan administration, how like it affected personally, you know, people within my family who struggled with mental illness. But I think class consciousness, what helped class consciousness make this a little bit less isolating for me was giving a sense of, I don't want to say hope, maybe like a broader connective tissue between these type of things so that you could no longer be just a one issue type of person. It had to be a multifaceted type of thing. You could no longer just fight for one particular type of cause. You had to try to find community with other causes because of the ways in which they connect to yours. And I think that's where class consciousness especially helped me to try to connect to make those things. If I did not encounter Occupy in my own in Los Angeles County around the time. If I didn't watch the final days at Occupy Los Angeles, you know, it being broadcast on a news television on one channel and then the next channel 
a Victoria's Secret show with Kanye West and Jay-Z rapping alongside a bunch of models and seeing the distance in media, among other things, like, I probably would still just be fighting a one-issue cause, but probably to my detriment. Hmm. Um, as for how being trans has helped affect that, um, I've known for a long time how much trans people have to struggle with poverty um, to the point where it's almost pathologized, where, you know, poverty can be synonymous with queerness and transness and vice versa. So the fact that I came out as trans, when I came out, there are some people who expressed like a concern as if I was like going into some sort of abyss where like, here I am, this barely comfortable person in a man suit, and now I'm a trans woman, but I may be more happy, but I'm going to be tossed into this abyss of poverty from which I may never rise out of. But sometimes some people talk about that in terms of concern. Other times it's almost as if they're blaming you. Like, I could find some way to help this. I could find some way to try to cope with this, to deal with this. But I couldn't cope and deal with this because how deadening the experience of being a gendered um, person in America and capitalist society it's so deadening. I think I would rather trade that type of insecurity of being my own true self than try to delude myself into thinking that maybe if I stayed in the closet for a little while longer, maybe if I tried to adjust to people's gender expectations of me as a Black man back in the day a long time ago, maybe I'll find some way to transcend that kind of pain. That never came for me. One thing... Which you say in the essay, there's this point where you're talking about this kind of sense that toxic norms and uh, the way you're expected to live up to this thing, even among people who like overtly were saying they were against this kind of marginalization was definitely something which resonated with me. And I think you kind of mentioned earlier, there's this sense that like even in circles which are explicitly inclusive or want to be inclusive, that's kind of not the reality in the actual relationships or the actual experiences you have in those spaces. That's thing which really engenders this kind of distrust in me, right? Like once you've been through that experience a certain number of times, you just almost develop this kind of paranoia. Right. I mean, the thing about this is, the thing that can hurt about this especially is that like when I was growing up, what kept me in the closet for a long time was the idea that people call me maliciously, you know, bigoted towards you. When in reality, it's more something that can be done almost subconsciously. You know, people may say, you know, trans women are women, but I find that before you can even begin to talk about the theoretical thing, it's about like, even about stuff like, say, Stalin's national question, or even the final points of Leninist theory, you have to overcome, first overcome whatever visceral feelings you may have about particular persons and bodies. Like, I have to say that, you know, in my experiences, there's been a mix of good experiences where people have truly tried to go beyond, you know, this essentialism where like, you know, people want you to prove yourself to them, but not in the case of them being safe, not a case of me being a safe person, rather of me being like a youthful person or at least being a person who's well-versed enough in, in theory so as to not make any strategic errors. But even that, I don't think you can rest upon these type of things. Like, okay, so we have a political line. We may have a political line. We may have a system of accountability. We may have ways of checking upon each other. All these are very great things. 
the work doesn't stop there. I think there seems to be almost an implicit type of wish of just simply being able to just prop up whatever type of format or frame there is and thinking that once you've erected it once, that's all you need to do. You just gotta, you just gotta like test it, you know? So like how people test the hardiness of certain material by scratching a diamond against a pot or something, try to determine how hard it is. That's how people seem to treat theory in relations to organizing and working with the marginalized people that kind of be on the side of. But setting aside that this like, you know, can leave a lot to be desired, I think people had to understand that theory also needs to evolve too. In a way, we almost all become revisionists, you know, eventually. We have to be because, you know, as much as we may be able to have a particular theory and test things out, we may find the world moving on. I think in regards to like some of the vulgar materialism that we see, it's like a group of people who can't seem to accept the world had moved on since 1929. <laughs> if not even before the original split, if not even before the original split between W.B. Du Bois and the Communist Party and the white-led Communist Party not being down with the cause of slave abolition because of seeing slaves as being like in a very like adversarial relationship to right. workers. That, among other things, it feels like people just want to be able to filter those kinds of things out, and then you have a revolution. But I think there's point a cart before the horse. Right, like we just need to focus on one social division at a time, and then, <laughs> and then we're going to get somewhere. Yeah, like there's almost this idea of acknowledging the changes is almost counter-revolutionary. Mm. You can talk all day, we can problematize all day about how academia can be disconnected from communities, which can be true. Or how the academic can be hives of like bigotry and elitism, which can also be true. But there's an almost anti-intellectual streak in some of this criticism. Rather than problematizing knowledge, rather than like, you know, saying, hey, this type of knowledge is being placed behind lots of walls and lots of like people who are lower income don't have access to this knowledge. Instead of like taking what I think would be a more proactive stance of like, you know, maybe going inside and distributing some of that knowledge or like, you know, even holding a reading group, you know, where people get to look into these type of topics and see why it's disconnected from you. It's a right. wholesale rejection of these type of dynamics. It's a wholesale rejection of the changes made since the 1960s. Yeah, well, one thing about the book, which I guess is worth mentioning, is I was I was trying to keep track of the actual practicing academics who were involved in it. And I think there's like three or four lecturers, like three or four people who are currently lecturing in universities. There's one person with tenure, which is Geordie Rosenberg, who wrote the afterword. Yeah, but this collection is primarily not written by, <laughs> well, it's not written by people who toughed it out as successful academics but I think that's partially to do with age and partially to do with class background right like to be a successful academic you need someone who's gonna bankroll you during the year or two or more of um, applying to hundreds of jobs sometimes in several different countries <laughs> with all the travel that that revolves in so um this is obviously a book which which draws a lot out of academia but it doesn't kind of belong to it I suppose one thing I'm curious about Farah is in terms of like how things have changed. And this is obviously, I would say this, the picture looks really different in Britain, where I'm from, and where I guess a lot of the listeners will be based, and like the United States. Because like, as you were saying, like 2016, November 2016 was like a pretty uniquely bleak moment for trans people in America. And it feels like 
at this point in time, it's hard to say, right? Um, I'm very curious about how things have changed. But in Britain, it feels like since 2018, when there was a huge debate around the Gender Recognition Act that provided uh, a real intensification of transphobic conversations and discourses, especially among kind of liberal circles across Britain. It feels like in Britain, everything's kind of like becoming bleaker and worse. And like, there seems to be very limited scope for trans liberalism in Britain, to use Nat Raha's term. Um, like, it seems like trans liberalism in Britain is pretty much exhausted and hopeless. Whereas like in the United States, it seems like that kind of perspective is going from strength to strength as the Democratic Party kind of gets captured by this exactly kind of, like you say, this kind of sloganistic trans women are women, <laughs> like the least kind of revolutionary and the least threatening um, mode of trans acceptance seems to be really taking hold in America, right? I mean, noting some of the differences, like for one, we in America have informed consent, whereas yours, Jules, is quite different, right? I haven't lived in, in London since 2013, but uh, but no, um, Britain is a complete clusterfuck, but that's one of the reasons I'm not living there. So yeah, yeah Britain has a clinic system, which um, I wrote another piece about, but let's not get into that. Gotcha. Okay, well, um, in any case, yeah, I think in my particular case in America, at least, yeah, it is, there is a lot of sloganeering. There is at least like broad displays of acceptance. I think in America, there is this like, generalized idea of trans acceptance, but there is a aspect of which is a response on two fronts to like the feminist backlash in 1990s, you know, famously like, you know, Cagalock and Susan Faludi's um, backlash. The book Backlash talks about the feminist backlash in the 1990s, you know, this hyper-masculine um, society during the Bill Clinton administration, you know, speaking of a land of contrast there. But there's also a response to um, Republican parties, like, embrace, if not outright takeover by evangelical Christianity and Christian dominionism. And so, like, people seem to want to have this idea of basically fighting against um, Christian fascism. I think the fact that Christian fascism is actually relatively very unpopular in the United States in some aspects is part of why there seems to be more victories for trans rights in the United States. But I think there are a few areas that have to be accounted for. Um, with this brush for trans acceptance, there comes to be a subtle, if not outright, erasure of class dynamics. So when people say that trans women are women, it's for this idea of the um, middle to upper class trans woman. You know, a person who's relatively presentable, a person who's worked with a few NGOs, if not a leader of an NGO, someone who's able to run their own business, you know, providing trans services. But meanwhile, for most of us, that type of respectability is out of reach. You know, I myself have to depend on a local family health center that gives like medical exams every three months Whereas like other people, you see like these startups trying to fast track some of those things for $99 a month or something for those type of things. So like as far as it being a victory, it's only a representational victory. It's only a representational victory of you too can be your girl boss, trans woman, not like, you know, Compton's Cafeteria or any of those other things that are a little bit more messier that show a little bit a quote-unquote uglier side of trans sex workers or vagrants or disabled people who aren't able to have that same type of positionality. Yeah, it's, it's really conditional on being able to buy your way out of the standard living conditions for um, trans proletarians, right? 
Yeah, like a lot of us have to depend on, you know, Planned Parenthood and, you know, set up meetings with Planned Parenthood. You know, people at Planned Parenthood are overworked as it is, but they're also onslaughts, threatening to take away Planned Parenthood's funding during the Trump administration. Now suddenly Biden is in office and like people don't seem to notice that or care about that as much. Because that's another reason why I want to like say that as far as the March for Trans Progress in America is concerned, it's all about like, you know, party politics, like not to be cynical, but I'm not particularly sure if the push for trans acceptance would be anywhere near as aggressive if it couldn't somehow be leveraged as a way of getting into office. Yeah, sure. And I think that in the book, a few of the essays kind of look at what working lives look like for trans people. And obviously, uh, if we're going to talk about like people in this situation, you can't really understand trans working lives without also unemployment, because most trans people, uh, at least at some point in their life, are having to put up with phases of unemployability or like precarious working and so on. And Michelle's chapter, which is just called Trans Work, kind of looks at this in some interesting ways and looks at the different the different kinds of work which it seems like uh, trans people often find themselves into, which are often not what people might expect. So for instance, like working in retail, working in specific like subcultural places, like a metal bar is one of the examples, um, because there's a, a relatively high tolerance for people expressing basic gender nonconformity, like, like long hair and stuff in those circles, um, working for sex shops, things like that. Often these are the kind of places which trans people wind up working. Um, but then are obviously places with their own labor struggles and their own like bizarre conditions and like unsafe situations, which those workers get put into. Yeah. So this is like, this is the aspect of things, which I think is, is very unlikely to change under Biden or any president I can think of really. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's kind of my impression of things that like the issue for the United States is there's continually this tyranny of the employer. Right. So yeah, you have the freedom to starve or work for someone who's going to try and control your life on all of these fine details. Right. And I think that's where like the tyranny of the employer comes into play as to why so many people in LGBT communities can be particularly harsh towards people who fall outside of these kinds of lines. I can say that myself, I experienced like precarious employment from there to there. Yeah, I've worked in tech, but I've also worked for community centers, even for particular organizations under different lines of work. In the tech workspace, there's this idea of trans acceptance, sure, but it can be divorced from all the things that make me me, which was kind of nerve wracking because, like, you know, I came out in 2016. Yeah, I got the acceptance. I was welcomed into the HR office, even trying to tell me, oh, we're going to make some changes to the bathrooms and some spaces. Okay. But like, <laughs> <That's a classic. laughs> right, right. Like, hey, we're going to have this bathroom that's like a few floors down with the other bathrooms. And I'm sure gonna... they didn't ask you first, right? <laughs> I mean, they asked for input. You know, they asked, me for <laughs> in- they asked me for input. Like, I can say that much. Like, okay. that's the thing. Like, it's a bare minimum type of thing. Um, it's a bare minimum type of acceptance of transness where like, you know, it's an acceptance of transness as long as I'm able to keep on punching in that work, keep on doing the labor task, which, you know, is already quite coercive enough. But then there's the other side of this where, like, you know, if you go out into wider spaces, into supposedly LGBT-friendly spaces, 
you may think of them as being like broadly friendly, but you can find interpersonal dynamics that are quite different. I, I do like talk about some of these details of my own gender encounters and like some mm-hmm. gay spaces from going to a particular dive bar that I liked, you know, ever since a trans woman that I dated introduced me to it. And we've been friends since, and I've been going there. This is a space where two gay men, you know, make out with me while knowing that I am trans, you know, I try to stress that I am trans. I even try to present myself in a way that signals to people that, Hey, I'm trans. And then one person says, and I quote, I think she might make me switch. Um, <laughs> yeah, and like I'm like <laughs> that's such a charming compliment, right? I, I mean, I'm charmed by it. I'm I'm definitely charmed by it. Yeah, I'm I'm turning people by. But like on the other hand, I try to talk to people about this type of encounter. There can be a mix of like annoyance, but also concern. One person when I shared this particular story, they were like, "Those gay men that don't really respect you. It's more like gynophobia, gynophobia that drives their attraction to me." Oh wow! <laughs> which which I'm still thinking about to the very day. Like, what the fuck? How am I supposed to take this? Um, <laughs> that's such a bizarre reading of the ambiguity of the situation, right? Because I've been in this situation before, so I had to laugh when I reached this position. I at one point hooked up with the owner of a gay dive bar, who is other than that, as far as I know, exclusively identified as a gay guy, uh, has a long-term partner, blah, blah, blah. And it's Mm. very hard for me to place this, you know what I mean? Because clearly he became besotted with me, but who's to say how this fits into his overall identity? And also that's what dive bars are for, right? It's like they're exactly (laughs) for this kind of sloppy, probably unwise, incongruent (laughs) like experiences. Yeah, yeah, like... the, well, this yeah, is like, what I mean. This is not something that we should have to like set aside. It doesn't. This doesn't have to be the center of our politics. But like, why does it have to not be that? This is thing which is part of our lives. I mean, the thing is, like, people seem to have this fear of you know rendering people invalid or somehow tainting other people. Like, we have such a mm-hmm. fear. We react so much to the radical feminist fear, or as I talk about this in my text about corrective sexual assault by trans women onto cis women. We right. respond so much to that particular idea that we go into the opposite direction, saying that there can't be any commingling with these communities whatsoever. We can't even acknowledge each other. We have to be in our own particular gendered space. We have to be somehow segregated from each other so that we don't run the risk of making that yeah. fear come true somehow. Like, how exactly is it helping to conquer these type of fears that people seem to have with trans women somehow fooling people or somehow, like, raping people by lying to them? We try to make these type of gendered spaces, sure, you know, we can talk about the importance of not erasing lesbian experiences, which important, you know, we should absolutely should not erase it. How does policing people's dating lives do this, though? It, yeah, it's just trying to establish trans people as like, especially trans women as a folk devil, right? That's my interpretation. Yeah, what seems to happen in, in the course of your essay is you're talking firstly about a certain type of, let's say, radical feminism, although I don't think it's only radical feminism that does this to people, but what you describe as this sort of fear of toxicity or fear of, you know, whatever, toxic manhood, which leaves you kind of like trying to silence or trying to like strike out things in this way, which is really just never going to be possible because the people you encounter have expectations, you know, they have expectations of men, which then uh, you sort of get drawn into. And then like, yeah, by the end of the essay, you're kind of like, well, you know, 
now I need to be seen. And that's, uh, oh, now I want to be seen. I think that's what you say. <laughs> you say you want it. And that's what I feel transition offers so many people. It's like you go through these years of saying like, oh, well, you're perceiving me as a man, but <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of my socialization. I'm trying to get rid of my my Y chromosome, whatever uh, account you give of yourself. But like that's ultimately for many people, that's never going to be enough. You can't just eliminate undesirable features of yourself and, and expect that to be a whole life. That's something which it seems like to me transition is the only thing that can do that for so many people. And um, that's something I want to like celebrate and that's something I want us to acknowledge. <laughs> like that's something I want us to not have to like hide it away all yeah. of the time. You can hide it some of the time, why not? But <laughs> Right. I mean, like, you know, we see this now in the wake of the Olympics and like the obviously racist policing of particular bodies and stuff right. like that. And some people say it's disingenuous to say, oh, it's the trans panic that's causing these black women to be victimized. But like, how is that not connected? Like, you know, in my particular case, for a long time, there have been circumstances of black women being like demoralized and characterized in almost dehumanizing, masculizing ways. Like, you know, yeah. even Angela David talks about this. Like some people might say, oh, well, you're just being a weirdo who's conflating black women and these men in dresses. I'm like, the entire fucking history of radical gay history is about this congruence, about these meetings and encounters between gay men and lesbians and drag queens and cross-dressers and so on. Like, you know, you can't neatly cleave off these parts without right. undermining the entire structure of these type of things. So no, it's not disingenuous to say that trans panic is leading these talented Black women to be victimized. At the same time, there is an aspect of Blackness that some people seem to want to almost brush over. Mm -hmm. This is part of why I'm particularly critical of Vogue and materialism is because of how it talks about race, where people now want to pretend with a few selective readings of Adolf Reed or whoever that, you know, mm -hmm. race is no longer going to matter. That, oh, well, now that we've demonstrably proven that Obama <laughs> hasn't changed the world, that, that Obama hasn't brought back this post-racial paradise, like on one hand, you can problematize, okay, well, maybe there's a reason why the presidency didn't change everything. Maybe there's a reason why Guantanamo Bay is still in place, and maybe there's a reason why drone warfare is still in place, despite a black man being at helm. But people seem yeah. to want to ignore those type of things and say, well, now we know that race is a big swindle. Race is a big swindle. People invented racism, which... So we can just ignore it. Yeah, yeah. Which, first of all, when people talk about a class inventing racism, first of all, this is ingenuous. There were mm -hmm. racial distinctions before capitalism, it's just what's changed is how the motives of capitalism can utilize racism. I will say about Adolf Reed, I don't have many nice things to say about him. I will say like his essays from the 70s, like Black Particularity Reconsidered especially, it's worth having in your system. It's worth reading. I feel like <laughs> if he's the right. only Black theorist you're reading, you're yeah. in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and I feel like that's exactly the instrumental use he's come to play for a lot of people. Yeah, honestly, it feels like a lot of people just read Adolf Reed just to justify listening to Chapo or being a dirtbag leftist online. It's like, is yeah. that really, you don't have a bigger imagination than that? I just wanted to say one more thing concerning these Olympic competitors like you were talking about, because I feel like this is one of the cases where, as you say, it's hard to see what, like some part of it is clearly because of the trans panic. The trans stuff is clearly being used, especially by the Olympics. The IOC, the Central Olympics body is clearly using this to kind of get away with their shenanigans. But to me, it feels very much like this kind of cocktail of interphobia, like revulsion at intersex physiques, yeah. intersex things, and uh, black women. 
which is right. almost, it almost appears like the same thing. You know what I mean at this point? Especially there are some remarks that a lot of these officials were making. Like they were like, these girls are being born in third world countries and they uh, don't have the normal like procedures which we perform on them in the West. So they're referring to like intersex gender mutilation as if it's this like, you know, in a civilized country, we would have sorted this stuff out and they would have had like this. But, you know, the extent to which the kind of colonial racism and the like revulsion at the idea of someone being raised a girl, identifying as a woman and having internal testes, like the horror about right. that whole idea. It's like you can't tell the anti-blackness from the interphobia, right? It's like hand in glove. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, um, not to mention that goes into how neatly that dovetails into the popular narrative of people in African countries as being like savage, where right. like you have these black people who are inhumanly strong, inhumanly good at particular athletics, oh, it must be because of this bestial quality to them that we're going yeah. to reject onto the particular person. Like it dovetails neatly into this. And it's funny that some people are saying that it's disingenuous to talk about this because like, you know, that dynamic obviously isn't just inflicted upon the global South. We've seen this internally in, we've seen this internally. Like, you know, right. Violet Morris's whole story, horrible <laughs> person, but even she had to be like, you know, subjected to this type of like, idea of exercise and sport being unbecoming of women's physicality where like there's both this demand of gendered subjects of meeting a certain idea criteria of physical fitness but for women specifically women couldn't work out the way that men could or else some doctors literally said it made them infertile among other things and so like Violet Morris's whole deal again monstrous person but if even she had to deal with that type of dynamic even she had to deal with that type of like gender surveillance. What hope do we black people have outside of that? Right. And what's horrifying about the situation is not that people are being born in Africa and avoiding these interventions. It's it's horrifying that in the West it's become standard medical practice to remove clitoral tissue and gonads and all of this stuff under these false pretexts. These kind of two overlapping fears about like trans panic and also the like horror at intersex bodies if i may like that's part of why i mentioned angela davis reflections on the black woman's role in the community of slaves like that's why that particular work is so important to me because like it shows how like you know marginalized peoples can be put in a pedestal but that pedestal turns out to be an auction block in the right. case of a black woman that was especially the case because black women were both you know denoted with these masculine features of being able to work, but at the expense of their own communities and at the expense of their own particular bodies. It's almost as if people are interested in gendering us, if only because they can find somewhere to exploit us. In my particular Mm -hmm. case, as an organizer, I have to find that, no, yeah, people don't have that particular direct relationship to my own body, you know, my own marketability. I can handle that, thank you very much. The OnlyFans drama is not helping right now. But you know, people can still carry over vestiges of that type of thinking where like, you know, okay, I may have these broad shoulders. I may have this particular voice. People might say this is a masculine voice. Like, it's amazing what type of essences people seem to want to cling to at almost all costs. And I'm here to say that, you know, I can't be the only one doing all the work. I can't be the only person in this room problematizing your own fucked up conceptions of me you're going to have to reach across the aisle sooner or later. Definitely. So it's been nice to take a bit of a backseat on this one and just listen to both of you talk. Um, If I can pose a question at this point, though, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. 
Uh, the book deals at various points with the relationship between capitalism and gender, uh, how gender is like a site bounded by property relations. Um, could one of you say a bit about the relationship then between capitalism and the formation and function of the private household? Uh, because it's quite interesting to note sort of the ways in which the household shapes norms around gender and sexuality in society. Uh, so yeah, I'd just love to hear a bit more about that. If I may read a little bit from my contribution, maybe that might help to like connect some things. So like, especially in my particular essay, The Bridge Between Gender and Organizing, I do talk about this specifically, this relationship of gender with capitalism and extraction of labor. So blackness is often coerced in and out of gender and serves as the greater good. So separatism on trans lines serves as no more a solution for me than organizing in mass parties. My black skin is considered a threat almost everywhere I go. If I came to separatism, by what basis can I trust that other separatists have my back? Angela Davis in Reflections on a Black Woman's Role in the Community of Slaves spoke of black women being both gendered and depersonified to fulfill particular roles as women, but in a manner much different to white women. The aforementioned as women was in service of extracting labor from them for capital and white supremacy. I think of how my affirmation as a black trans woman could serve similar ends. Trans women are often placed front and center, and the media were represented as objects of purulent fascination, illicit transgression, or more often, vilification. And sometimes we're even invited to do the work. But that is not the same as being seen as human. We serve some purpose which is not our own, providing a point about the experiences of those who do not share our experiences. And then we're gone, assuming we're even the same we by that point. Our gender diversions can't be divorced from how race has been used to divide, conquer, and harvest entire peoples in association with gender. Expressions that were once tolerated, even cherished, in some pre-colonial societies are now subject to debates about them being Western influences, while reactionaries in post-colonial Nigeria and elsewhere. And if we are quick and correct to point out the racist class contradictions in the first and second ways of Western feminist organizing in theory, how separate are we as trans women from those contradictions when we wish to organize for ourselves because they're failures and misunderstandings of people in the broader left? From where I see it, we can't be separate. As gendered subjects, we carry the burdens of others, fairly or not, simply because of the nature of identity and its use for justifications of exploitation in the West and beyond. Systems that uphold some and depress others to reproduce themselves implicate all of us to varying degrees, because the very mode of reproduction we take for granted is so pervasive that even good deeds may be steeped in blood. Yeah, wow. I think that should have to connect some things, because, like, you know... I think there seems to be a desire to want a clean way out of things, which, you know, first of all, if you're familiar with any type of Leninist thought or revolutionary thought for us, whatever, you know, that's just not possible. At least, you know, we shouldn't be bloodthirsty. Maybe we shouldn't be so eager to kill people. But like at the same time, the forces of his contradictions is going to be some particular kind of conflict. And so like we have we're going to have a talk about how we're going to break down these forces and understand that, you know, if we're going to be looking for liberation in the traditional sense of innocence, that's just not possible for any of us. It's not going to be a tidy process and social relations are often not overturned without a fight, right? Uh, yeah, kind of following on from that reading, I think um, what we wanted to do in the introduction and kind of gets touched on in a lot of different ways in the collection is this question of private households and that kind of place that they play in trans lives. Yeah, and obviously these are at once like having an upbringing is something that all of us kind of go through <laughs> like all of us were raised by somebody but on the other hand there's like really obvious historical patterns historical like movements and trends which kind of deploy these in various ways 
And when it comes to transgender struggles, I feel like this is the thing you kind of have to address and have to understand. And also it's thing which results in very varied experiences, especially. So as well as Angela Davis, I think the work of Hortense Spillers, who talks about like black parenting and like black motherhood and how like this kind of the counterpart in the United States between the succession of property across generations for white families as contrasting to like the succession of dispossession. So like being the child of a slave kind of being something which also gets passed from each generation onwards through the 19th century. Yeah, so this was kind of like one of the things which we were getting at. And also, yeah, Farah already mentioned this, the Ludi book Backlash, but there's been like a, a large amount of work done on how the new right and its kind of like ongoing success story and reshaping Western politics was very much about like this notion, not only of needing like a powerful police force and not only having a state which was willing to put down the miners' strike or in the United States overcome air traffic controller actions, but also like strong families and having like powerful household authority uh, and kind of retrenching the claim which people had to sort of like bring their children or bring the youths in line. And um, this is one place which like it comes up with transgender experiences very quickly, but I think it comes up in a way which often confuses people and leaves people kind of like unclear on what we can really talk about as like political struggle and what we can talk about as personal issues like family drama or whatever else so like basically what I'm talking about here is like I think for any group of trans people you encounter probably like a minority will have healthy or functional or indeed any ongoing relationship with their family of origin and this is something which is so intuitively obvious like in transgender circles, it's not even something you would ask about unless you're prepared for a like deep <laughs> ranting <laughs> conversation or three. Um, like it's yeah. just kind of taken as read that probably the person you're meeting doesn't get along with their parents or extended family in some cases. Sometimes the parents are supportive, but like other like whatever uncles, aunts, grandparents are really not. So like obviously you can't have uh, politics which is only geared towards this or like exclusively focused around it but also this feels like something we have to have some kind of answer to and something we have to kind of include and make some sense of one thing that i liked about your introduction is how you problematize the concept of family itself because i have to say like you know my own family experiences they weren't all bad i definitely love my grandmother very much you know bless her i definitely had some support from family but there was also a dynamic where you have to understand that you know as much as Angela Davis problematizes this idea of the community of slaves and the family structure implicitly, sometimes explicitly in her, some of her later writings, I want to bring it up because, like, you know, one particular solution that I seem get brought up all the time, either disingenuously or even earnestly within the Black community, is this idea of a need of a family patriarchal structure, a strong patriarchal structure to fight off, you know, rates of gang violence, rates of drug abuse and things like that. But like, this is just like taking for granted, like, you know, what exactly makes a family to begin with, the levels of coercion that can make a traditional family as we know it to begin with. What good is a good, strong father figure if that same father figure or even mother figure in some cases, you know, isn't going to allow your kid to even talk about their own feelings about attractions, um, same-sex attraction, or wanting to wear a dress, or what have you. In my particular case especially, I had to go through a lot of um, regulations around like how I express my own gender, which you know I found to be imitating a lot of women that I seem to be very into having a lot of different gender interests. Not completely, you know, I'd say I was like a 
tomboy, I guess. But even that type of flight, you know, diversions was met with a lot of scrutiny. On top of that, we have to understand that with um, Black communities, you know, dealing with being disconnected, at least in the United States, even around the world in some cases, from what we think of as our own traditional countries of origins, and therefore our culture understandings. We had to go through these particular radical processes of reinvention. As Stephen Chandler once wrote about, like, you know, destabilizing or desedimenting our own ideas of Blackness, where it's not just, you know, this proven idea of Black people being a monolith, but also, like, you know, occupying our own space as Black people will mean having to do away with some orthodoxies or even with some hopes of us being able to find one comforting type of structure or orthodoxy that might soothe us for a time, but it won't stand the test of time. Yeah, it's a real and ongoing struggle, right? That was Jules Joanne Gleason and Farah Thompson on Radicals in Conversation. If you want to keep listening, then do head over to patreon.com forward slash Pluto Press, where members can access the unabridged version of this and previous episodes of the podcast. A reminder again that podcast listeners can get an exclusive 50% off transgender Marxism for the next month through plutobooks.com. Just enter the coupon podcast at the checkout. Well, we'll be back next month with another episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.